Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. And let us pray. God is the garden in Genesis grows into the city of light in Revelation. Help us to remain open to new manifestations of goodness and love. And as we heal from old religious wounds, I ask that love would reintegrate this sacred text into our lives as a catalyst for the good that you're inviting us into this very day. Amen. Today marks the first Sunday in Lent. And throughout this season, we're going to be in a sermon series titled, Moving It All Forward. About this series, we write, The Bible, this library of ancient documents written over centuries by many authors, presents the modern reader with significant challenges. Inspired by the beauty of a psalm or the mercy of Jesus' words, we turn the page only to read something that feels violent or regressive. How can we hold this text as sacred story when much of what we find in its pages is clearly not good? In this series, we aim to hold the Bible as a library with a trajectory. As humanity grows and its understanding of God becomes richer, we're able to see in the Bible itself movement forward. From sacrifice to gift, from vengeance to mercy, from exclusion to inclusion, and from ideas of divine violence to demonstration of divine solidarity. In this sermon series, we'll explore how passages that seem violent to us today actually represented a move forward in the author's time and culture. And we'll consider how these stories can inspire us to look for where the divine beckons us forward now. I am really looking forward to this series. Many people who end up at Pearl have sincere angst toward the Bible because they've been told that it's infallible, incapable of making mistakes. And they've been told that it's inerrant, incapable of being wrong. And to make matters worse, they've been told that if they cannot accept the Bible as infallible and inerrant, then they fall outside of Christian orthodoxy which usually results in people hiding their questions or suppressing their angst or walking away from the Bible altogether. As I understand it, the problem here actually has very little to do with the Bible. Instead, the problem arises from a modern construct for the Bible that doesn't actually work. Here's what I mean. A primary lens through which many Christians have been taught to read the Bible is the lens of literalism. According to literalism, in order to be Christian, a person must literally interpret and believe what the Bible says. Now, literalism comes out of a Western Christian, primarily American doctrine called inerrancy. Inerrancy explains that the Bible is incapable of being wrong. And unfortunately, many Christians today think that inerrancy stretches all the way back to Jesus himself. But it doesn't. You may find it helpful to know that inerrancy wasn't a sanctioned doctrine in the Western Church until the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy in 1978. 
think about that for a moment. That is one year after Star Wars was released. <laughs> and so many of us have been taught to read the Bible literally, and literalism comes out of inerrancy, and inerrancy ultimately comes out of the Enlightenment when the church began trying to compete with science in scientific terms. But you see, the Bible precedes the age of science. And so to think about the Bible scientifically is kind of like trying to think about love in terms of productivity. It just doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense. To force an interpretational lens of productivity onto love would be to mishandle and to misunderstand love. And if we were to double down on love through the lens of productivity, then over time, love would start to feel terribly problematic. And this is exactly what inerrancy and literalism have done to the Bible. These interpretational lenses have forced us to mishandle and misunderstand the Bible. But to be clear, that's not the Bible's fault. This is the fault of Western, Christian, American theology that has insisted on a literal and inerrant framework for the Bible. The Bible spanning about 900 years of writing, almost 1,000 years. The oldest writings from the Hebrew Scripture from the 8th century BCE and the newest writings from the Hebrew Scriptures are from the 2nd century BCE. And then in the New Testament, the oldest writings in the New Testament are from 50 CE. That's about 20 years after Jesus was crucified. And the newest writings are from 120 CE. The Bible was written by many different authors, and many editors had some say in how the final books took their form. The Bible was written in various cultures and social mores. The Bible was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The Bible contains different types, genres, and forms of literature. Are you beginning to see why thinking about the Bible through modern constructs like literalism and inerrancy is problematic? It may also be helpful to know that the Bible did not, poof, become the Bible in a singular moment, nor did it become the Bible at a particular council or official church meeting. Rather, the Bible became the Bible in a messy, overlapping, threefold process. Step number one. First, the books were written. <laughs> Somebody actually wrote the books. And then second, over time, the books became scripture. Now, to be clear, when we think of Scripture today, we think of books in the Bible, but, but in earlier times, Scripture is a word for books that had yet to be in the Bible. These were books that were written that had over time in Jewish communities and Christian communities started to elevate and be thought about as something extra special. And then finally, the third movement, over even more time, some of these books that were considered scripture slowly found their way into canon, meaning they were chosen to belong in the Bible. According to biblical scholarship, the Hebrew scriptures became fixed as canon around the first century BCE. That's about 200 years after its last book was written. And the New Testament scriptures became fixed as canon around 4th century CE. That's about 200 years after its last book was written. You see, this book is wonderfully ancient. And this book is marvelously human. 
And so long before the church began trying to compete in scientific terms with words like infallible and inerrant, the Bible was handled through a lens called accommodation, which allowed people to thoughtfully accommodate for this inspired book through the ancientness and the humanness of its authors. Now, I realize that this way of thinking about the Bible may feel very new, maybe even frightening, perhaps even heretical. But please know that this is deeply and pervasively and historically Christian. For example, Augustine wrote this about the Bible. Anything in the divine writings that cannot be referred either to good, honest morals or to the truth of the faith, you must know is said allegorically. Isn't that interesting? And John Wesley wrote this about the Bible. If the literal sense of the scriptures is absurd and apparently contrary to reason, then we should be obliged not to interpret them according to the letter, but to look out for a looser meaning. Isn't that interesting? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this about the Bible. We must read this book of books with all human methods, but through the fragile and, listen to this, through the fragile and broken Bible, God meets us in the voice of the risen one. And so you see, it's through this lens of accommodation that we can bring all of our knowing, our reason, our values, our convictions, and our modern sense of what is good. We can bring all of ourselves to the scriptures as we attempt to look for and sniff out the divine heart of God for today. In these wonderfully ancient and marvelously human books that God inspired millennia ago. And this brings us to our new sermon series, Moving It All Forward. Freed from the absurdity of inerrancy, we're now set free to notice the beauty and trajectory of the Bible. And it's this trajectory that I think can fill us with so much hope. Because in the Bible, we're able to bear witness to humankind growing and expanding and evolving into more and more and ever more goodness. Here's what I mean. Consider a few passages from the Bible. Exodus chapter 20 provided an ancient moral code of conduct. Numbers chapter 35 demanded cities of refuge for those who accidentally killed someone to flee to and to dwell within so that the revenger, yes, this was an actual job title, so that the revenger could not exact revenge. Deuteronomy chapter 21 established protocol allowing women who were captured in war to grieve for one month. Furthermore, if after taking a woman to bed, the man found himself unhappy with the woman, he was prohibited from selling her and was instructed to let her go wherever she wished. Now, I just want to pause here to acknowledge that this is horrifying. Horrifying. But, but please stick with me here as I, as I turn the corner. Romans chapter 14 and 15 differentiated between strong and weak consciences when it came to eating clean and unclean food, and those chapters encourage acceptance of the other. And in the book of Philemon, Paul wrote to a slave owner named Philemon and asked him to receive back a runaway slave named Onesimus, not as a slave, but as a brother. Now, with these passages in mind, as terrible as they seem to us today, it can be observed that these were actually movements forward in the ancient world. An ancient moral code in the midst of violent tribalism was a movement forward. 
refuge for the innocent when a revenger was allowed to exact revenge was a movement forward. Allowing space for a woman to grieve and to be set free as opposed to sold was a movement forward. Making room for differences when it came to clean and unclean food was a movement forward. And receiving back a runaway slave as a brother instead of as a slave was a movement forward. Now, of course, these movements do not go far enough. Not even close. I mean, how about just putting an end to the notion and role of a revenger, or treating women as human beings instead of as property, or making room for differences beyond clean and unclean food, or abolishing slavery altogether? Yes, of course. But you see, through the lens of accommodation, we're able to appreciate that these kinds of revolutions would have been unconscionable in the ancient world. Such consciousness about human rights and dignity and justice and the abolition of slavery and equality were beyond ancient Israel, beyond the Apostle Paul, and beyond the early church. But to be very clear, in their day and age, these movements were radical. They were good, they were compassionate, and they were beautiful steps forward. Now, moving beyond specific examples like these, it's important to notice the progression of larger motifs in the Bible, from law in Exodus to love in Matthew, from obedience in Deuteronomy to grace in Romans, from differences in Genesis to similarities in Galatians, and ultimately from chaos in Genesis chapter 3 through 11 to cosmic shalom in the final two chapters of Revelation. You see, the Bible beautifully, and even provocatively, makes manifest a trajectory toward endless human growth, inclusion, and love. But to see it, and to appreciate it, we have to stop looking backward at the Bible by allowing its trajectory to cast our gaze ever forward. Because an ancient moral code in the midst of violent tribalism was good, but it's not good enough today. Refuge for the innocent when a revenger was allowed to exact revenge was good, but it's not good enough today. Allowing space for a woman to grieve and to be set free as opposed to sold was good, but it's not good enough today. Making room for differences when it came to clean and unclean food was good, but it's not good enough for today. And receiving back a runaway slave as a brother instead of as a slave was good, but it's not good enough today. Do you see? Too often, we're looking in the wrong direction. The Bible is not calling us backward into the past. The Bible, actually well-read through the lens of accommodation, which frees us to notice trajectory, the Bible is actually attempting to point us ever forward. Equality, inclusion, egalitarianism, integration, these aren't movements that should frighten us and send us running back to the early church. No. According to biblical trajectory, these are divine movements in the world that we Christians can celebrate, participate in, and give our entire lives to appreciating. For this is, biblically speaking, the trajectory of the divine at work in the world, not just yesterday, but very much today. I'm not exactly sure where you're at in relation to the Bible, but for me, Finding this ancient and historical interpretive lens of accommodation saved me. 
What I mean by that is accommodation saved my relationship with the Bible. And then coming to recognize the Bible's trajectory, I have, over the past several years, begun to experience a more honest, interesting, intelligent, and provocative way of engaging the Bible for good today. No longer holding me in chains and pulling me backwards, I've been set free to consider how these ancient stories might inspire us to look for the next movement forward here and now. And that is our hope for this sermon series. Many people at Pearl have old Bible muscle memory, which means that we pick up the Bible and even if we've begun to think about it differently as we read, it's really easy to fall back into old interpretive problems. And so for the following five weeks, Ben and I are going to try and model a more helpful biblical interpretation through accommodation and trajectory. Each week we'll look at one ancient story and we'll consider how, even though it may be strange or barbaric to us today, we'll consider how it was actually really beautiful a very long time ago. And then with that particular movement forward in mind, we'll do the contemporary work of asking, how might the soul of this ancient movement forward, how might the soul of this ancient movement occur here and now and today in our lives and in our world? Our hope is that we will leave here each week with some new thoughts about how an ancient text might inspire new life today. And in the spirit of this church season called Lent, which is a time for people to increase their practices of religious devotion, we hope that this series can help to rewire some of our old muscle memory so that we might grow less triggered and more inspired by this sacred text. To borrow from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we hope to read this book of books with all human methods. And through the fragile and broken Bible, find that God meets us in the eternal Christ who continues to move hearts forward even now. May it be so, and let us pray. God, as the garden in Genesis grows into the city of light and revelation, help us to remain open to new manifestations of goodness and love. And as we heal from old religious wounds, I ask that love would reintegrate this sacred text into our lives as a catalyst for good that you're inviting us into this very day. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.